Wednesday, which means it's time for another episode of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes the not-so-classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I'm talking about my podcast and yours, Monster Kid Radio. I am your writer, host, and producer, Derek M. Cook. I'd like to welcome you to episode 508 of the podcast. This week, we are opening up the episode with the song Trenvia Asesino. It's from the band, The Buchanan, which is a surf band based out of Spain. It comes from their self-titled EP, which you can find at thepcanon.bandcamp.com. Of course, I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes, and you'll hear the song in its entirety at the end of this episode without me yakking all over it and ruining everything. So stay tuned for that and go check them out when you're done listening to this episode because we've got another awesome show for you this week. At least I think it's kind of awesome because it's got some of my favorite people, people that I think are awesome, like Mark Matsky with his Beta Capsule Review. Kenny with his look at Famous Monsters of Filmland, and Stephen D. Sullivan is coming back to the show to talk about the movie Unknown Island. Now, spoiler, I liked this movie a lot, but I'm going to tell you why I liked this movie a lot when I have Steve on the show here in a short moment or two. A couple of things of business to get out of the way. First, this Saturday at the Monster Kid Movie Club in the stream, the free movie thing that we do every Saturday starts at around 11 a.m. Pacific for the pre-show, and then the movies start around noon. It's Bigfoot Day over there this time around, which means we're going to be showing movies like Curse of Black Lake, The Legend of Boggy Creek, and some other movies. <laughs> My mind just went, <laughs> just gone. But I know we're showing a bunch of movies that all have Bigfoot-like themes. Yeti, the giant from the 20th century, that's one of them. Anyway, you can find out more about the Monster Kid Movie Club by looking it up on Facebook. We do have its own Facebook page, but you also can just follow along on Twitch. Just go to twitch.tv and look up Monster Kid Radio and you'll find it. Or go to monsterkidmovie.club. Nothing but Bigfoot movies on Saturday. That's coming up. I'm really excited about that. I think you guys and gals are going to dig it as well. Of course, everything that you hear us talk about on the show, you're going to find in the show notes over at monsterkidradio.net. Our contact information is over there. Links to our Facebook page, our Facebook group, our Twitter, all of it, and the Monster Kid Radio Discord. I'm opening up the Discord to everybody. If you are a user of Discord, please hop on over there and join us. I'm going to make sure there's a link over there, and it is a link that will never expire. So you don't have to worry about getting in there right away. I'm going to make sure that you can get in and join us. It's a good time when we have activity over there. And the only reason there's not a lot of activity there right now is, well, you're not there yet. So hop on over there and join us for various conversations, uh, screenings, streamings, votes, polls, just a good time. So join us over there if you are a user of Discord. Trying to think of anything else that I need to mention before we move on here. I can't think of anything off the top of my head, so we're going to go ahead and get into the rest of the show. Of course, if I remember anything between now and the end of the show, well, I'll bring it up then. Let's get into the rest of episode 508 with, uh, let's start with Mark, then Kenny, then Steve. Here we go. volcano. Great herds of cattle stampede before this living inferno. Vast area devastated by appalling new horror. 
a creature named the Black Scorpion by panic-stricken people of San Lorenzo. Entire population prays for deliverance. And for miles around, cowboys came upon one dead steer after another. One of them had heard the tale of the demon bull of the Maricopa, having lost family or friends to something absolutely unknown. We could be in another world. Nation's leaders confer as news received a possible threat to capital. This is a city of four million people. If word of these leaks out, the panic of the population could be worse than the scorpions. The black scorpion destroys communications. Hundreds annihilated. Produced on a scale never achieved before by any science fiction picture. Thousands in the cast. Cold, glossy pages of True Magazine call the killer shrew the world's most savage mammal. You'll never venture into a forest alone after you see The Killer Shrews with James Best and Ingrid Good, motion picture horror masterpiece. The Killer Shrews. When modern Navy scientists defy the unknown mysteries of the past, perpetuated by centuries of native belief, then nature strikes in all its vengeance in Barath, the unbelievable. For generations, the legend was passed on. They said Baran was there, deep in the still waters. They said, let Baran sleep. That lake water's gonna be contaminated after we finish the tests. Probably affect the fish, too. We just can't take any chances. But those people have depended on their lake for their livelihood all their lives and their parents before them. Anna, now should we be this concerned about a handful of people when we might perfect something that could benefit all mankind? Hmm? All right, Jim. But the Navy commander would not heed their warning. He moved forward, ever searching, ever probing, deeper and deeper, until it was too late. Baran rose from the depths slowly, unrelentingly, to wreak its vengeance on a civilization that wanted to know too much. Tumultuous. Terrifying. So awesome it will shock you to the core. Buran, the unbelievable. Live from the Land of Light in Nebula M78, home of the mighty Ultra Heroes, it's Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review. That classic sense of unbalance is back in a big way in Metamorphosis, the 22nd episode of Ultra Q, which was initially broadcast on May 29, 1966. The discovery of giant footprints leads the residents of northern Japan to conclude that a yeti has been stalking the region's villages. But Yuriko's friend Ayako is sure there is another explanation. In the presence of June, Ipe, and Dr. Ichinotani, Ayako shares the tragic tale of her fiancé Koji being poisoned by the elusive Morpho butterfly, 
which causes him to begin mutating into a giant wild man. Racked with guilt for abandoning him in the forest, Ayako is determined to find Koji, and the Ultra Q team vows to lend their assistance. When Koji stumbles into a mountain village, however, the self-defense force is waiting for him with guns drawn. Ayako's only hope is that Dr. Ichinotani's experimental X-beam heat ray will have the intended effect when it is turned on Koji, but to find out, she must put herself in harm's way. Metamorphosis was written and filmed early in the series. It was second on both counts. And the production values, acting, and tight storyline represent Tsuburaya Productions giving its best effort. The actor, Kozo Nomura, who played both small and extra-large Koji, was no stranger to special effects cinema, playing notable roles in Ghidra the Three-Headed Monster, Mothra vs. Godzilla, Varan the Unbelievable, and the previous year's Frankenstein Conquers the World, which seems to have had more than a passing influence on this particular episode. For Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review, this is Mark Matsky reporting. I love the weird timing of all this with this Metamorphosis episode coming out, uh, or at least being covered here on the show, Mark, because the whole, you know, it's a Yeti, Bigfoot, well, they don't really say Bigfoot, but this whole Yeti thing, you know, considering that Mark and I are going to be on the show next week talking about The Legend of Boggy Creek, talking about Bigfoot, that sort of thing. I just, nice timing, only could be better if this was actually next week's installment, but you know what? We'll just start the Bigfoot love early with this one. Uh, I really liked this episode too. And I didn't realize it was the second one they did. So that makes a lot of sense. Uh, the, the, yeah, it really does. Uh, Mark, thank you again, man. I can't wait to have you on the show next week. And thanks for doing this. Really appreciate it. I am Dr. Lee Cushing. Welcome to my Chamber of Horrors. Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors is a monster rally novel in the tradition of the classic Universal and Hammer horror film. It's written by Stephen D. Sullivan, the award-winning author of White Zombie, Daikaiju Attack, Manos the Hands of Fate, and one of the creators of the original chill role-playing game. This book recreates the thrills of the classic monster versus monster film. We've got vampires, werewolves, mummies, psychic twins, scheming madmen, and plenty of unexpected chills. Now you can get Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors in print, or for Kindle at Amazon.com and other fine retailers. Coming soon in other ebook formats. Find out more at CushingHorrors.com or SDSullivan.com, and support Steve's work through Patreon at HeySteve.com. I do hope you've enjoyed your visit. Please come again. And remember, the chamber is always waiting for its next victim. Now, for the first time, enter a chamber of torture. The most blood-curdling double feature ever brought to the screen. Night of the Blood Monster, blood from the mummy's tomb. Two terrifying tales of torture, together on the same bill, both in color rated PG, parental guidance suggested. See Night of the Blood Monster and Blood from the Mummy's Tomb. It's twice the terror. (laughs) 
Hello there, Monster Kid Radio Heads. This is Kenny with a look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. Today we are going to look at films receiving article-length coverage in FM 35 from October of 1965. Vic Prezio's painting of Lugosi's Dracula welcomes us into this issue, loaded with three movies from the past. The first film covered is a low-budget 16mm film made in 1941. It featured a 17-year-old man who was going to be a star. Ever hear of Pierre Gint, starring Charlton Heston? Chances are, this is the first time it's come to your attention. We just discovered it. It's about to be made available, all 85 minutes of it, in 16mm, for schools all over the country. In it, you'll see gnomes, elves, trolls, goblins, and the great Boyg. Pierre Gint was produced, directed, and photographed by David Bradley at the age of 21. He also played several minor roles in it. 25 years later, he has resurrected it, adding original material not used in the first hasty cutting when he was racing with his draft board to complete the picture. Francis X. Bushman, a star of silent films seen in the sound monster film The Phantom Planet, plays the great Boyg, known as the Voice in the Darkness. Prints of the picture are available to literature, art, music, and film classes in schools everywhere in America. Next up is a film book of 1958's Night of the Blood Beast. This film merited seven pages and seven photos. It was nothing but synopsis. Let's hear a highlight. Outside, he sights something in the darkness and sees the ladder nearby trembling ever so slightly. There is something moving in the brush. Dave draws his revolver and switches on a flashlight. Something big as a bear lunges forward and Dave fires at it. Before he can even see it clearly, it overpowers him and hurls him aside. Suddenly, inside the station, the lights flicker and go out, and the huge hulking something bursts into the laboratory. Dave joins the others and excitedly relates his encounter. They are all absorbed in the darkness now. Dave and Julie go out to the power plant to check on the fuses, but find nothing abnormal. The light should be working. But then, John should be dead, too. Up next, a film book of the 1956 classic, Godzilla, King of the Monsters. It covered 11 pages and included 7 photos. The article consists of a detailed synopsis. Let's look at an action highlight. As Godzilla rages through the heart of Tokyo's industrial section, it stumbles upon a subway, and the wires pass an immeasurable amount of voltage through its body. Godzilla roars in pain and anger, and its elephantine tail thrashes about, crumbling the buildings around it. The city is ablaze. Godzilla has turned the heart of Tokyo into a sea of fire. Beneath the flames, thousands lie dead or dying. Meanwhile, a Japanese reporter is babbling out his story on a broadcast tower near Godzilla, and others around him are snapping photographs of the monster. In a while, Godzilla advances toward the tower, peering at the puny insects who peer back at it, and it seizes the tower in its teeth, bending it. The monster hurls it to the ground, and the reporters scream as they plummet downward to the arms of death. Nothing can save the city now, Steve mumbles, wiping his brow. Godzilla approaches the building in which he is, and everyone flees, but Steve remains. He looks on at the horrifying visage before him. This is it, George. Steve Martin, signing off from Tokyo, Japan. That is all for this week's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. 
We will have more next week. For MKR, this is Kenny saying adios. Kenny, I went and I looked up the movie Pier Gind. I don't know anything about this movie. I've never even heard of it before. So I went to go look it up. The Internet Movie Database says it's an hour, 40 minutes long. That, that's a longer film for this time period, 1941, uh, directed by David Bradley. I, I don't know anything about this guy either. So I went and I checked, and turns out he's the <laughs> genius behind the Mad Men of Mandoras. You know, the film that got turned into They Saved Hitler's Brain. Uh, I'm sure he did a few other things of note as well. But hey, you know what? You're on MKR. He's the Hitler's brain guy, as far as I'm concerned. Pierre Gent, I looked up. There are some clips on YouTube. I don't know if it's in the public domain or who owns the rights or whatever. But it looks surreal and just weird, man. There's some silent film style title cards, but there is spoken dialogue as well. And it just looks bizarre. So, wow. I want to see this movie now. Kenny, thanks for doing this. And thanks for bringing some attention to a movie that I have never, ever heard of. diabolical minds of the madman of Bandorus was created the most incredible plot ever conceived to conquer the world. Why did you bring us here, really? In a matter of hours, we will begin the conquest of the world. Phil Day, undercover agent, trapped in the trap he set for the madman of Mandoras. <laughs> Professor Coleman, American scientist, believed his staggering discovery to be a secret. Up to now, anthropine was the only known antidote. The loss or destruction of the formula for this antidote would mean complete annihilation of the world. But he did not reckon with a group of evil men, men who will permit nothing to stop their rule of the world. What unknown force has been created to conquer the world? And which of the madmen pushed the panic button? Somebody's got to get Vorak. I guess it's up to me, Casey. magnetic field. Take part in the terrifying search for the Phantom Planet. Battle an army of deadly meteors. See daredevil men repair their ship on the edge of eternity. Vital feed lines hit. Air cut off. My ship is being drawn toward an asteroid. Instruments completely out of operation. I'm going to try to land. I don't think I'll make it. See the first man land on the Phantom Planet. See a six-foot man shrink to six inches before your very eyes. 
Introducing Dolores Faith as Zetha, the girl from outer space, whose beauty secrets are wrested from the cosmic rays of the Milky Way. Discover the atomic mysteries of the universe. Those are gravity plates that we've had placed here. Their intensity is so high that any object or any person placed on any one of them would immediately disintegrate. Here, let me show you. Men on the Phantom Planet risk instant death for their women. The appalling warfare of other worlds. Sun-blazing solarites attack. The greatest danger to us is the high-intensity heat bomb. Right. They have enough concentrated heat to blow up our planet instantly. See the solarite monster break loose. Thrill to the awe-inspiring battle for survival. Activate the gravity curtain. The fantastic power of the weapons of outer space. Cosmic rays destroying the solarites. Last week in the Monster Kid Astronomy Club, not even last week, just a couple of days ago. No, it was just a couple of days ago. I guess it was last week. Time is an abstract con. You know what? Time moves weird during the pandemic for the life of a podcaster. I don't know. What what day is it? It's Thursday, and it was Tuesday. We watched it. What year? (laughs) Who are you? (laughs) It's Stephen D. Sullivan. What's up, man? Hey, I'm just hanging out going to talk with you about this movie, which we watched together on Tuesday, which I think was your first viewing, and now it's Thursday. And I I actually just watched it again just before we talked, because we were so busy live chatting during the original showing. I thought it'd be good if I had kind of a clean show to go with it. So, there we go. (laughs) Well, I mentioned it in the beginning of the show, I'm sure, and I hope I have some awesome cover art to go along with the episode, but it's the movie Unknown Island from 19... What, 48? 1948. Which blew my mind. It is the first colored dinosaur picture, period. At least in the U.S. Maybe there's something overseas I don't know about, but in the U.S. it's the first color motion picture with dinosaurs. I was shocked that it was that uh, early. I, I guess. Yeah. I expected it to be a little bit further along in the classic sci-fi cycle, you know. Right. It kind of feels like a picture that would have come out in 1954 or something like that, or no, yeah, 56. No, it's it's kind of surprising that it was that old. Although the color may be kind of a giveaway. Maybe. Yeah. And the version that we saw had somehow been enhanced, supposedly. But the movie is in color normally. It's in Cinecolor, which is uh, one of those processes they used back then. And it does look, like I said, yeah, like a later film. Yeah, aside from the color, which looks a, a lot like uh, red-green Technicolor in a lot of ways, just to get a little technical for a, a couple of minutes, Technicolor actually was three negatives that ran through a camera, so you needed this huge camera setup and these huge lights, and you had to pay Technicolor a huge fee because they had someone on set every day checking the cameras and testing the cameras to make sure that they would be up to their amazing color standards. Cinecolor was one strip of film that you ran through a regular camera, like a black and white film. Right. So at the time it wasn't as bright and as responsive 
a a process and it and so it looks a little antiquey kind of even in its best days it looks a little a little brownish a little yellowish a little but it's actually it's it's a fairly pleasing color blend and we watched it on youtube and then i watched it again on the uh, the image entertainment dvd and it looked pretty much the same i didn't see actually any enhancement <laughs> okay at all for the enhanced quote-unquote youtube version so right but it's, it's an interesting little tidbit and be, you know because of that it looks like maybe it maybe it was a, a later bit of filmmaking it's not obviously not as good as the the kind of kodak colors that we ended up uh with at the end of the 50s and stuff that that uh made color filmmaking much much easier and i appreciated that it was in color i mean yeah. it gives it a different look than a lot of the movies that were coming up around that time especially considering the topic uh if this was the first color dinosaur film for the states at least in north america or whatever that that's awesome yeah the dinosaurs you know they <laughs> this dude's in suits <laughs> yeah. but should we talk you know, about the dinosaurs in the room yet I, I think we'll get to them right but one last thing about the color it is the same color process that scared to death Bela Lugosi's only color film was made in. So, gotcha. so if you've seen that, you have some kind of an idea of what Cinecolor is. It's cool, but it, it doesn't look like modern color. Just be aware of that. It's It's got a real kind of surreal look to it, a little dreamlike, which I feel like really works for Scared to Death, considering the kind of movie it is. Yeah, and I think it works for this, too. I think it does, too, too, yeah. That's one of the many things that you should know about Unknown Island, which is a film, I'm guessing, that unless you were watching with us on the Monster Kid Movie Club, the Astronomy Club version on Tuesday, I'm guessing this is a film you may not know a lot about. You know, it wasn't something that I knew a lot about, and partly because... There are so many movies that have the word unknown or island as part of the title that it kind of gets lost in the mix, I feel like. It does. And that was my problem anyway. It does. And I, I'm not even – had you heard of it before I brought it up and said, hey, I think this is public domain. We could show this. I knew it was a movie. I couldn't tell you what it was or whatever. And I knew there was a quote-unquote famous movie that had men in dinosaur suits, one of whom has a problem on – you know, during – production <laughs> and i knew that happened because bob burns talks about having been on the set when that happened uh in either a documentary or a book or something like that i can't remember where i read it but he talks about having been there when that actually happened right and i thought that was cool okay i mean and we'll cool talk about that, that a little bit used. as we get going yeah. i think we'll we'll uh, mention yeah. <laughs> what happened but first do you do you want to do the classic gonna, five now i'm gonna hit me the classic five Close enough, right? Awesome. Close <laughs> close enough. Well, and uh, the Classic Five, it's a game that we play here on the show. I've got a literal deck of cards. Each one of these cards says this or that. Which movie do you prefer style question? On them, there are no wrong answers. We call it the Classic Five because we're going to try to go through five cards. And it's just a way to get monster kids talking. Icebreaker, passing the time. Or and it lets people know a little bit about me or whoever your guest is. In case you haven't exactly. heard the, the other 50 times I've been on the show or whatever. Right. It is now. <laughs> you know, I haven't, I haven't kept track. Uh, I have slowly been adding monster kid radio to the internet movie database, which is something you can do now for whatever reason, they will let you add podcasts. So I've been slowly doing that, making my way through. And by the time I'm done, I'll be able to go to Stephen D. Sullivan, look up the monster kid radio listing. And it'll show how many times you've been on. 
I've tried to keep track of that too since someone asked me about it for a book that I was working on. And he was like, I want to list all your Monster Kid radio appearances. And I'm like, geez, okay. So I went back and tried to find them all. And, yeah. and I got a whole bunch of them. And he was like, oh, that's way too many. Pick your favorite ones. <laughs> I, I have a feeling you know what book that was. I have a feeling you might too. Because I think I've read that piece a couple of times while I've been going through editorial. But anyway. <laughs> um, <laughs> but that's not one of the questions. No, no, it's not. So question number one. How many episodes of Monster Kid Radio? I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Card number one from the Hammer Deck. Taste the Blood of Dracula or Blood from the Mummy's Tomb? Um, neither of those are actually my favorite from either of those series, but I'm going to go with taste the blood of Dracula because I think the the story holds up better. And I like, uh, I'm not crazy about Ralph Bates in that role, but Christopher Lee is Dracula, man. It's Christopher Lee is Dracula, even though again, that's not his best role in the whole series either, but it's still, it's a lot of fun and it's got, it still has a good cast and uh, a lot of interesting things do happen in it. And it kind of brings Dracula into a different setting. So taste the blood of Dracula for me. Feel the cold grip of his presence. Sense the clammy excitement of his evil. Taste the sharp fear that he alone can bring. Dracula's blood. This way, gentlemen. We know the way. These men thought they had tasted all that life had to offer. Ready when you are, gentlemen. Would you be willing to sell your souls to the devil? If one thought that one's experience might be extended. It would be extended to infinity. There's someone there. Dracula is back to choose his human victims. Alice. Who are you? How do you know my name? Dracula is back to select his companions in darkness. Who must die that he may live. If you shock easily, stay away. She's neither dead nor alive. Lucy! 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 Prepare yourself. Every nerve, every muscle. Oh, no. Prepare yourself for the greatest shock of all. Almost always will take a mummy movie over a vampire movie because I've got a mummy fetish. Um. <laughs> and I hear that too. And Valerie Leone is terrific in Blood from the Mummies too. Uh, it, it's the story that kind of lets me down there. 
I haven't read the the Stoker story it's based on. Yeah, I mean, I like a lot of it, and there, there are some things about it that I would have liked to have seen done differently. I do like the performances, but Taste the Blood of Dracula is one of my favorite Christopher Lee Dracula films. Uh, if I were to rank all the Dracula films from Hammer, I would probably put it like in the top, in the number three spot. Wow. It is one of my absolute favorites. I love the idea of Dracula as some sort of avenging undead taking out these three guys who just really deserve it. Yeah, there, there is something really satisfying about that. Now, I'm going to guess your other two would be the original, which is Dracula or Horror of oh, Dracula. Of and the second one would be Brides of Dracula, uh, which is no. a great film. And Nope, nope. It's it's not. I love that film, but it would not be there. Really? What's second? Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires. Wow. Okay, that's <laughs> cool and interesting. See, my, I love that one so much, too. Mine would be Prince of Darkness and Has Risen from the Grave and the original one. Uh, not necessarily in that order, but I freaking love Prince of Darkness. <laughs> I do, too. I do, too. And, you know, as with any question in the Classic Five, ask me again tomorrow. Yep. If you want to hear something different, just give me 24 hours. Shoot, give me a couple hours and I'll give you a different answer. Yep. Okay, card number two. Uh, from the kaiju deck, black and white kaiju films or color kaiju films? I'm going to say color because uh, Mothra versus Godzilla, the original one, is my favorite of all of them. Uh, except perhaps the original Gojira film. So yeah, that one and King Ghidorah and Monster Zero are my they're my trilogy of perfect kaiju films i love those three they're all in color so i'm gonna go that way but i i do love the original gojira it's in a class by itself i don't know what my answer would be (laughs) it it depends on what kind of mood i'm in i guess if i want something a little bit more serious i want to go black and white uh the color films especially in the the early you know showa era films they're just fun they're not heavy. They're not deep. They're just fun. They have some good stuff in them. I'm not saying they don't, but you know, nothing can really top in terms of like real horrific stuff happening. Gojira. I mean, the first Godzilla yeah. film, it, it's so dark and creepy and says so much and is so dangerous. I mean, it is so good. It's a brilliant film. And, and like I said, it's, it's a, for me, it's in its own category. Exactly. You know, if I think of other black and white kaiju films like uh, the original Gamera film or um, mm-hmm. or um, um, Varan the Unbelievable, they're just not in the same class <laughs> as the original I mean, Gojira. Yeah, I mean, Gojira is, is the one to beat. I mean, that's right up there. But then you see something like Destroy All Monsters, which is great, but it's all pretty much... I don't want to say flat because that makes it sound like it doesn't pop because it does, but the lighting is pretty one note. Right. You know, there, there's not a lot of care or, or need to really to tell some sort of really dark story or allegory here at this point. It's a fun movie where monsters beat each other up. Right. And I love it for that too. Me too. <laughs> Me too. You know? And it's, so. it's amazing looking at it now from an adult perspective, how quickly they moved away from intricate, miniature city sets and into big wide open spaces that we don't have to rebuild things and the monsters can throw yeah. each other around on. <laughs> Let's just put them on the moon. Uh, that'll work, that'll right? That'll work, yep. <laughs> yep. Put them in the moon, no put them in the forest. There. 
minimize yeah. <laughs> the city damage, which was one of the things. Everyone thinks about the city damage in those films, but in the show era, they very quickly moved away from that to battling on the, the slopes of Mount Fuji or anything that they could have them outdoors yeah. and uh, cause less, less damage and need fewer takes. Because if you screw up wrecking that building on, on one take, you got to put it back together until yeah. you destroy it again. And there's even that right. shot in, uh, I think it's it's either versus Mothra or versus King Kong, where, no, it must be in Mothra, where the Godzilla suit hits the model of the, the temple wrong. And actually, the temple breaks okay, but the suit breaks something in the snout of Godzilla, and his snout oh, no. is kind of wobbly. If you know it, you can see it. His snout is kind of wobbly in parts of that film, but even more in the film, the next film where they use the same suit, which is one of the reasons they ended up rebuilding the head on that suit eventually, mm. I think. So anyway, uh, color for me, black and white for you. Hard. Unless I'm in a kind of, you know, just kind of, I don't know, veg out with some popcorn and have a good time, then I want color. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you. There are movies that I will watch late at night just for fun. And there's movies that yeah. I have to really pay attention to. So, all right. Three. Card number three. If you could swap places with any character from a classic monster movie, who would it be? I think I've been asked this before, and I I still haven't come up with a better answer than Carl Denham. He gets to see all the cool stuff. He survives the first movie. He manages to get sued in the second movie, but still comes out of it all right. Still gets to see more cool stuff. And he actually gets to pay back all his debtors and get the girl at the end of the second film. So... Carl Denham, man. I get to see dinosaurs. I get to see Kong. Yeah, a lot of people I know get killed, but... (laughs) You know, if you're in a monster movie, people are going to get killed, right? Dr. David Reed. Really? Of course. Of course. Of course, Dr. David Reed. (laughs) Why did I say really? Yeah, of course, Dr. David Reed. Steve, you know you're talking to me, Yeah, right. right. (laughs) I want uh, Julie Adams to cling to me because, you know... This is going somewhere different. Card right. number four. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Hey, this is from the Monster Bash deck. Other than Abbott and Costello, what other comic or comedy duo would you like to have seen meet the classic monsters? Oh, that's a good question because I I have this weird relationship with horror comedies. I know. I don't like them generally in some ways. I have a hard time kind of coping with the fact. Now, I love Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. And I really like all the other Abbott and Costello movies, but after that horror comedies don't always work for me. So, you know, if I were to say Martin and Lewis, then we'd say, well, we kind of got that. <laughs> and is that the Brooklyn gorilla film or the other one? The Lugosi Lugosi meets uh, Brooklyn gorilla. No, that's the one. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, well, that didn't work out so well. So let's not go there. Oh, I know. I know. Uh, Bob Hope and Bing Crosby. You took mine. (laughs) (laughs) Because I think that would actually be brilliant, and I think it would work. I think the, you know, the road to Viseria or the road to Transylvania would would have been as much fun as the road to Morocco and the road to Utopia and the and the uh, the road to Zanzibar, which I think are their three best road pictures. I think you could have had a pretty great Bob and Bing meet the monsters picture. It'd be fun. Yeah, would have been. It's so much fun. Must have read it out of your mind, man. 
or we were talking about it in the Monster Kid Movie Club this past weekend. Yeah, it could be that too. Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> final card, final question. If you could be on set during the production of a particular Hammer film, which one would it be? Ooh. Um, 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 um. I'm, I'm going to go with one of the ones I went with before. I'm going to say Dracula's Risen from the Grave because I've Love Veronica Carlson, and she was so sweet when I met her at the Bash uh, almost two years ago. Now she's amazing. She's she's terrific, and I love that film. I love the the characters in it. I love the arcs. I'm not crazy about the uh, when he uses that color lens at the edge of the lens as color and stuff. I'm not crazy about that effect, but I love every other aspect of that film a lot, uh, including the end of it. So. Yeah, that's that's the one I'm going with. Dracula has risen from the grave. Boy, does he give a hickey. How about you? Rasputin the Mad Monk. Oh, that's an interesting choice. Because I feel like Christopher Lee was having so much fun chewing the scenery. I would love to see that in person. He was. He was. And you know, the other one that popped into my hand right now was the reptile would be a fun one, I think, to, oh, yeah. to see because the makeup is so good. And um, gosh, mm-hmm. I'm blanking on her name. She's so beautiful. Um, that would be a lot of fun, too. But I, I still I would have to go with uh, Dracula's Risen from the Grave. The Classic Five! Let's talk about the movie some more. Yeah. Unknown Island. Unknown Island. 1948. 75 minutes of fun. It moves real quick. And it's a movie that, as we were watching it, I knew Richard Denning was in it when I was building the stream. I was like, oh, okay, Richard Denning, that's cool. I like Richard Denning a lot. Uh, in fact, I would probably go as far as saying, oh, I don't know if this is blasphemous. Ooh. I almost enjoy Richard Denning and non-monster stuff more than I enjoy Richard Carlson and non-monster stuff. I could see that. You know, I haven't seen a I lot love of- Richard Carlson. I, I haven't seen a lot of them in a lot of other stuff uh, that's non-monsters, but and I love them in their monster stuff. But I could see that Richard Tenning, there's something really charming about him when he's not playing a slime ball looking to get in Julie Adams' swimsuit. <laughs> uh, when I suggested this to you, I hadn't seen mm-hmm. it for a number of years, and I had actually forgotten how good the cast is, and I'd completely forgotten that Richard Denning was in it. I remembered, you know, a little bit about the cast, a little bit about the story. I remember a lot about the monsters, the dinosaurs, the the giant ape. Well, it's not too giant, but the big ape. Right. But not for, and I remembered enjoying it, but I didn't, I couldn't have rattled off the fact that it had Richard Denning and Barton McLean, who are two actors I really love. I didn't remember that at all. So it had been a, it had been a good decade maybe since I'd seen it. You know, when I was starting to build the stream for that day and I saw Richard Denning's name on there, I was like, well, why haven't I watched this before if it's got Richard Denning in it? And then as we're watching it on the day of the stream, it's like, I know that guy's voice. Why do I know that guy's voice? And somebody said the Torchy Blaine movies. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's the guy from Torchy Blaine, Barton McLean, who I love in the Torchy Blaine movies a lot. Those movies are fantastic. Right. And he's playing somebody a little more treacherous in this and he's great at it. Yeah, no, he's a terrible character here. <laughs> and it, mm-hmm. and I'd completely forgotten that he was a regular character on I, I Dream of Genie. Someone else brought that up. I brought up the Torchy yeah. thing because it's like, it's Barton McLean. He's in Torchy. Yep. Yep. <laughs> he's also in the Maltese <laughs> Falcon in a, just a ton of cool films. So yep. he's the, the uh, frenemy, one of the frenemy cops of Sam Spade in the Maltese Falcon as well. So you've got this really cool cast in this film that 
not a lot of people know about, even though it's in, it's in the public domain through a very weird quirk, as I remember. It's they released the film before they copyrighted the film, and under the old super secret, super strict copyright laws, you didn't do that. If you did that, you had no copyright on your film or something like that. That's what I remember. Is that what you remember? Yeah, something very similar to that. That's correct. So we haven't talked about the film. We might as well at least give a little bit of a synopsis. Yeah, we need to break it down a little bit so people kind of know what's going on. It's, I mean, it's it's a movie where they go to an island with dinosaurs, but there's a little bit more to it than that. Um, there's a guy named Ted and his fiance Carol, and they're in Singapore because back in the war, Ted had been... Uh, flying over the Pacific Islands and before he was shot down or something, had seen an island full of dinosaurs. So they go to this tough bar in Singapore where uh, ship captains hang out to find someone to charter a ship to take them to this island so he can get, Ted, he can get pictures of these things which he thinks are going to be worth a fortune. And while they're in the bar... It turns out that, uh, that Richard Denning's character has also been on the island, and it it basically turned him into a drunkard because no one would believe that he'd seen these dinosaurs. But Barton McLean, the sleazy ship captain, at first it <laughs> seems like he might be kind of a Han Solo type, as someone noted in the in the chat room. But yep. he's like Han Solo if Han Solo were completely amoral and wanted to mack on all the ladies. <laughs> <laughs> if Han Solo was somewhat amoral, he is amoral at the beginning of his character arc. Oh, so, he is, yeah. but he isn't. You know, he's, but he wasn't like this. Yeah. It, you know, he was the 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 amoral bandit with a heart of gold. This guy does not have a heart of gold. He's a bad guy. But they mm -hmm. hire his ship because he's uh, used to going after big animals, even though they're only looking to take pictures. They Shanghai Richard Denning. Because he knows the island. He was stranded there for a year or something like that. So they shang he doesn't want to go, but the ship captain shanghais him. And he wakes up on the ship already en route uh, with this, this other couple. Also on the ship are a whole bunch of, I guess, native islanders. They're from the Singapore or the area somehow. And they decide that they're not really thrilled at going to this taboo island. They stage a little mutiny that the, the rest of the crew manages to put down, but that comes back to haunt them later. They eventually find the island, and what do you know? There are dinosaurs on it! And uh, I don't know, we'll talk about the dinosaurs in a minute. They find the dinosaurs, they go through some adventures on the island, some, some people get killed, uh, some dinosaurs <laughs> get blown up, uh, and eventually we thin out the party and, and some of them some of them eventually escape, but I, I don't think a lot of people have seen this, so I think it, it's maybe good to kind of leave it vague for people so they can find it. It is on YouTube, and the YouTube print yeah. is pretty good. It's got a little bit of digital breakup, but, yeah. but mostly it's... But it's pretty solid. Yeah, you know, mostly it's very watchable. Mm -hmm. So did I, did I miss any of the high points there, man? No, I think that's pretty much it. I mean, like you said, I, I don't think getting too in-depth with it is a good idea. If I hadn't seen the movie and you gave me that, I'd want to see the movie. This is one of those films where when I recommended it, I was like, oh boy, I hope this isn't worse than I remember it being because I remember it's being kind of cheesy. But it, it turns out all the 
non-dinosaur parts of it are actually pretty solid and pretty in line with the, you know, it's kind of a, almost a dinosaur movie with a couple of film noir characters wandering into it. I got that vibe. You're right. Yeah. Film noir for sure. And it's like a film noir movie ended up on the ship going to Kong Island. Yeah. It's just this weird kind of mix that works. Yeah. It really works for me. And I actually, I, when I, we watched it again on Tuesday, I was like, wow, I had forgotten how much I really, really liked this movie. I had thought it had slow spots and that kind of stuff, but it really doesn't. And one of the reasons that I'd gotten kind of hooked into this was when I was looking for public domain movies to adapt, I had rediscovered this one. I think I first saw it because of, big surprise here, Famous Monsters of Filmland had pictures from it. But I rediscovered it when I was looking for possible film uh public domain films that i could adapt into books and this was one of the ones that was on my very short list to do if i had kept doing that until i decided i'd done the two most famous ones i could do and then i i was probably better off rather than trying to hook people into having done manos having done white zombie i thought i'm probably better off writing my own stuff now rather than adapting unknown island Though if someone wants to pay me to do it, I will. <laughs> As I say, it was on the short list. If I'd done one more, it was either probably either going to be this one or Killer Shrews. Oh, wow. Because I think those both have uh, – the stories in them are strong enough that they could really stand uh, a good novelization that could expand on the, the parts that maybe got glossed over a little on the film. Unknown Island, we've got four dinosaurs. I think we've got a, a brontosaurus. We've got a Demetrodon, which technically isn't a dinosaur. We've got the Ceratosaurus, which is a horned T-Rex. It's a T-Rex-like thing that has a horn on its nose. And then we have, it's not a dinosaur, we have a giant ape. It's not giant ape as in King Kong size, but a, a very large ape. Yeah, some places even refer to it as a sloth. Yeah. It's they, a very kind of vague kind of primate mammal thing. Yeah, it looks kind of like a an orangutan with a dog muzzle on it because it's a very odd it's a very odd suit in some ways. But it's cool. At least I think it's cool. Oh yeah, no, I thought it looked great. And you know, this is one of the things and I know I say this all the time, one of the reasons to watch these movies is to kind of see how things were done society-wise, mores rise, what the knowledge was like back when these movies were being made. So you've got the Stemetrodon in this film. You you know, it's not really technically. And as the Brontosaurus, which really isn't a thing. I mean, it's, right. yeah, it's awesome. It's, it's awesome to see what science thought or how the science thought the world worked or how the world was right. in, in a movie like this when you go back far enough. The brontosaurus are, they appear really very briefly, but they look like yeah. that classic plastic dinosaur toy a lot of us had in the 60s and 70s, maybe even the 80s and beyond. With the, the, I had them in the 80s. The curved <laughs> neck and the curved tail and the, mm -hmm. you know, the kind of Loch Ness monster look to them. And, yep. and they're in the swamps, which was how people thought that brontosaurs supported their weight at the time. And they're cool. And the Demetrodon, again, is one of the it's, – it's actually approximately the right size of a Demetrodon, I think. So it's, it's kind of man-sized, essentially. And it, it crawls like a lizard. It doesn't – you know, it's a, it's a costume or a prop, and so it doesn't crawl brilliantly. But it's right. – you know, I 
pretty sure that now we think they're probably more upright and probably moved a lot faster. But back in the 1948, dinosaurs were these huge lumbering beasts, especially when you had to do them all with physical props and men in suits, because there is no animation in this. There's no stop motion. So one of the things we have to disabuse people of right now is this is not going to look like the lost world by Willis O'Brien or King Kong or anything that Harry house ever did. This is not that level of special effects. <laughs> it's totally not that level of special effects. Now having said it's that, not. I think the Ceratosaurus guys in suits and the the amazing thing is that they had at least four of these suits of the ceratosaurus which is the carnivorous t-rex like dinosaur that men wore stunt guys were wearing they had at least four of them because there's four of them in one shot and they're clearly they don't have the budget to do a lot of double exposure to add more dinosaurs in the head is, of course, two or three feet off the guy's head. So the things are probably eight or nine feet tall, right? They're, mm-hmm. they're huge <laughs> and they're bulky. And they can't kind of wander them around in them the way, you know, they, we have these dinosaur alive kind of shows now where they've got these very technical kind of dinosaurs that are made to look and move like dinosaurs would, and you've put a guy inside them, and they're like the Stan Winston suits were in the original Jurassic Park. And you can actually have a, a dinosaur that looks like a real dinosaur if you ignore the guys in you know green leggings or black leggings or whatever that's running around in it. These are not that. <laughs> right. These are upright dinosaurs, tails dragging on the ground, and they're big. And the guys in them... They're, they're just kind of waddling around. They kind of have to <laughs> waddle them back and forth to get them to go anywhere. But I love that. Oh, I love it so much. <laughs> I love that. And they're not that much goofier, I don't think, than the T-Rex that's in The Land Unknown, the Universal film, yep. from uh, like six or eight years later, uh, which is also a guy in a suit. And that, obviously, they had a lot more money to throw at it. And these, this film, they had very little money to throw at it. All of the, the dinosaur shots, you never see them in the same frame with the human beings because they're always rear projected. Humans in the front, uh, dinosaurs in the rear via, uh, via rear projection, and the, and the ape, too, for that matter, or the sloth, they call it, which it's an ape, man. Yeah, it, yeah it's not a sloth. <laughs> I was like, why are they calling this a sloth? It doesn't look anything like a sloth, but that's yeah, fine. I have no idea. I, maybe they didn't want to get sued by King Kong. Maybe they yeah, maybe. You know, maybe. I'm betting now that I've said that, I'm almost sure that's what it is. They were very protective of that property, so yeah. Yeah. In some sense it's a very cheesy dinosaur. But on the other hand, it was good enough that their stock footage of these guys has appeared in a ton of other films. Yeah. Wandering through the, it's every time you see kind of big floppy headed dinosaur wandering through a desert with Joshua <laughs> trees around it, it's probably from this. <laughs> yeah, and I love these guys. Yeah, me too. And one of my favorite stories about this is they're shooting this in the desert. They've got stuntmen in these in these huge, hot, sweaty costumes that are bulky and they're heavy and they're hard to move in and they had to be like being in a sweat box 
And in one of the scenes, as they're waddling around out there in the desert, one of these poor guys gets so hot, he actually passes out in the suit and falls over. And they're like, oh, we can use that. <laughs> yeah, and they didn't stop. They're like, we're going to use that footage. We're going to use that footage. <laughs> and so they, they, you know, they set up a scene where the humans are shooting at the dinosaurs and they manage to nail one. Yep. Awesome. <laughs> oh, it's great. So in some ways they're really cheesy, but I'm one of those people that admires creativity and effort in low budget films. Oh yeah. And this one gets, it gets an A for me for really going for it. The special effects are shot separately from the people. There's no question that any of the actors are not playing it straight. Right. They're all, totally committed to it. They are not winking at us. They're not saying, boy, those are cheesy dinosaurs. We know they're cheesy dinosaurs now. Even in 48, they were probably cheesy dinosaurs. But you know what they're not? They're not lizards with fins glued on them being forced to fight each other. And I appreciate that too. And I I know that's part of the unfortunate history of dinosaur films or just Hollywood in general, not always treating animals the best. But you know, you got these guys in these suits, and I've talked about this before. It's the DIY thing, man. I love that. I respond to that so well. Yeah. And, you know, I love this. This was a blast to watch. And, you know, I never even got the impression that they were that far removed from one another, meaning the dinosaurs were shot at one location. Most of the human scenes were shot over at Corrigan Ranch, you know? Right. They did a good enough job in terms of editing and seeming everything together where it doesn't feel disconnected. No, it doesn't. It still worked for me. You know, I mean, rear projection was a standard thing for, well, it still is to some extent, except now they usually just do it with a green screen. It's stuff they would have done with rear projection years ago. Now they do with a green screen and it looks, if you've got the best technology in the world, it looks better. But if you've got not quite the best technology in the world, doesn't look any better than the rear projection screen, you know, whether it's driving a car or or flying through space or having dinosaurs chase you. If, if you're not at the top of your game, in my opinion, it's, this is just as good as those in a lot of ways, but people are going to find, people will find it comical because it is, it, it's kind of funny. <laughs> it, it really is. But again, there's a charm to it and the human actors are so sincere. Right. Hang on to those guys. Hang on to Barton. Hang on to Denning. Those are the ones that are going to anchor the film for right. you. Right. And the, and we didn't even talk about the, the two that are playing the, you know, the, the the man looking for the dinosaurs and his fiance, and that's mm-hmm. you know I think it's Jack Bernard I think is the no I'm sorry it's Philip Reed Jack Bernard's the director Philip Reed right. is okay. Ted he's one of these people he did a few movies but he has a bunch of uh, TV credits he looks like oh the guy in Mark of Zorro I was going to say Douglas Fairbanks Jr but that's wrong who's the guy that's in Mark of Zorro Derek can you think of it it was on the tip of my tongue until I actually started to say it. He looks like Tyrone, Tyrone Power. Power. He looks he looks like Tyrone Power. So he's kind of a standard Hollywood leading man. And the woman is Virginia Gray. And Virginia Gray, both Virginia and he were in Thin Man movies, but not the same Thin Man movies. <laughs> but Virginia Gray's got she's got a acting resume as long as your arm, 144 credits going yeah. up into the into the seventies and 
you know, one of these people that was on just about every television show in the world. But she started in the 1920s as a kid. So these these two people, but her especially, they're really good too. Once you get past those top four characters, the acting isn't quite as good. But Philip Reed, Virginia Gray, Barton McLean, Richard Denning, they they can hold the picture together, and they do. Yeah. And her character's even kind of a got a little bit of a tough broad thing going for a lot of the picture. Yeah, she ends up fainting in one scene, which is annoying. But <laughs> he, uh, that women did that, I guess, back then. Uh huh. Well, you know, I mean, they've evolved since then. Like genetically, they've changed. <laughs> I don't know. Well, some of it, some of it, um, I as I discussed with, I think, Dominique and some other people, some of women fainting was that they were wearing these crazy corsets and bustiers and things like That's that true. that re- restricted their their breathing. And even in, in the 1940s and 50s, you'd be much more likely to have a woman in some kind of undergarment that would compress her waist and her, you know, and her squeeze her body into what was then the ideal shape. So, in some ways, maybe it's not so crazy that women would faint in some of these films, but it's, it certainly happened more than it would ever happen in real life. I think in my 60 years, I think I've seen one person faint once. <laughs> anyway, that happens. But aside from that, she's got you know she's got some agency. She does she does some stuff. She doesn't make the choices you're always thinking she's gonna gonna make. They're terrific. I, I can't say enough about the four actors. We, you know, obviously we talked about Richard Denning. For those that didn't get it, he's in the Creature from the Black Lagoon. He's in the Black Scorpion. He was, uh, I think, the mayor in Hope, the original run of Hawaii Five O. He was married to Evelyn Anchors. You know, <laughs> and so he's been a lot of stuff. And Barton McLean, again, a resume as long as your arm. 185 credits. Yeah. So the cast is great. Special effects are homemade. <laughs> <laughs> I love the Dermetrodon too, though. It looks great. It actually looks a lot like Dermetrodons were thought to look at the time. It looks cool. Uh, it's not just lizards being abused. It's it's a cool look. Uh, the pacing, pretty quickly paced film. It doesn't overstay its welcome. It does what it needs to do. And just Barton McLean. <laughs> I like him. I like him in the Torchy Blaine movies. You know, the uh, the exasperated fiance or boyfriend, depending on which film you're watching, uh, at what point in the cycle you're watching it. But yeah, it's just so interesting to see him turn that character just a little bit. And now he's a jerk. Right. And I never really, I mean, yeah, he's a little bossy, stuffy, you know, maybe frustrated with Torchy in those films. But in this one, he just turns it just a touch and now he's evil. He's a bad guy. He's a, a, <laughs> and I love it. Although he, he does have moments where he's not quite so bad where you're kind of right. like, Oh, he's really devoted to this other guy and his crew or he's, you know, he has some redeeming qualities. So, you know, when he's, when he starts acting kind of irredeemably, it's like, Oh, but at the same time, he's a great bad guy. And there's a great, oh, there's fantastic. a great fist fight in the film too. Actually, there's a couple of pretty good fights in the film. I got to tell you, uh, you know, even even if I were Richard Denning, I'm not sure I would have wanted to get into a fist fight with Barton McLean. <laughs> no, he's built like a guy you do not want to fight. Right? Yeah, exactly. He's kind of got that Lon Chaney Jr. I I am big and I can hurt you. 
look to him. I'm stout. You know, I'm, I'm, yeah, no. Yeah, no, he's, he's got the wrestler look, that kind of, you know, that kind of Paul Nashy wrestler look. It's like, you mess that with me, school, yeah. you're going to hit me, I'm not going to feel it, and I'm going to break your back. So, yep. uh, so there's just, uh, there's so much that I love about this film. It's definitely a B movie. It is not an A picture by any stretch, but I think it has some, some A performances from the mm-hmm. cast. I think the crew did an amazing amount of stuff with what they have. There's actually a ton of story in it for a, a film that runs 72, 75 minutes, something yeah. like that. There's a lot that goes on. We only just touched on it and it's on YouTube. Yeah. Real easy to see. Honestly, I'd love to have a, a Blu-ray restoration of this sucker. That would be nice. It would. I don't know if it'll ever happen, but uh, probably not, but it would be amazing. And there, there was slash is a, an image entertainment DVD. That's really, it's got no extras at all. But it looks great. Who knows? It's probably fifty bucks a, a disc now. <laughs> it's not. It's not worth that. But, but it's definitely <laughs> something I'm really glad to have in my collection. And something, something I'm glad I could introduce you to. It's one of the things that I love about this show. There are so there's a finite amount of monster movies out there. I am long past the idea that I'm going to run out. But there are still a bunch of movies out there that I haven't seen that friends introduced me to. The recording that I did before this one, same thing happened. Never saw the movie until it got brought up here on the show. And, you know, now I'm very grateful that I saw it. This is another one. This is one where I was so excited to finally watch it uh, after learning that Richard Denning is in it. And then as I'm watching it, I'm getting more and more excited because I'm looking forward to talk about it now. And it's one that I am going to watch again. No, and I will too, and I'll I'll probably watch it more often because honestly, there aren't nearly enough dinosaur movies in the world, and there aren't nearly enough that don't have lizards battling lizards. There are a couple of good lizard ones. Uh, the Journey to the Center of the Earth is the one that springs to mind. That's a really good use of the lizard, but it's still yeah. There's still animal issues kind of going on in a lot of that stuff. What did they do to them? How did they do it? That kind of yeah. thing. Um, and so to find this, I'd much rather see guys in goofy-looking ceratosaurus suits collapsing from heat exhaustion in the middle of the desert somewhere <laughs> than, than watching two uh, frilled-up alligators and iguanas biting each other and twirling around in a death roll on top of a, a fake set. <laughs> Maybe that's just me, but... Yeah, I'd, I'd rather have a goofy suit, which is another, you know, another reason I, I like the land unknown, too. There's just not not a lot of lizard torture in that. I think there's one giant fake lizard, but and it's not CGI either. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think the only thing that would make Unknown Island a little better is if it was some quality stop motion stuff. But, yeah, you know, it's not enough to take away from the film that it doesn't have that. Right. Yeah. No, if you had... If you had gotten Willis O'Brien or Ray Harryhausen or Pete Peterson or one of the guys, and those are the three guys I can think of that were working around this time, if you'd gotten them and done the monsters with stop motion, this would be in a completely different category in terms of film. It really would. But I... But I love it as it is. I I like it a lot. You know, I've said love, and I I hope that we've understood that we've explained what we're talking about enough that people aren't going to go, Oh my God, this is going to be as good as King Kong. It is not as good. Oh as no, King Kong. no, 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 no. It no, is no. not as good as Son of Kong. It is not as good as Mighty Joe Young. It is not as good as the best films you're ever going to see, but yeah. it's for a B movie for, a, you know, shot in Cinecolor. It's a blast. 
yeah, and I think that pretty much nails it. I can't think of anything else to say other than it's a blast. <laughs> yeah, uh, I hope people will enjoy it. Let us know. I was really worried since I talked you into doing this Tuesday night. I was really worried that the people at the, the Monster Kid Movie Club were going to hate it. Because this is the kind of film that potentially gets done by Mystery Science Theater or by Rift Tracks. I don't think they've either of them have done it, though someone may write us and tell us differently. Yeah, I don't know. But it's a cool film. And I, when I was looking it up to make sure I had some of the info in front of me, I did, saw that there are a couple of other podcasts that have covered it fairly recently. And I was like, oh, maybe this, maybe this little film is having its weird little renaissance. And it would make a terrific, you could make a really good book out of this. Yeah. You really could. So if someone's got money, they want to throw at me to do that. So let me know. I'll, I'll squeeze it in after my next couple of projects, maybe. <laughs> well, this has been a blast. Uh, as always, it's fun to talk monster movies with you, sir. Uh, I'm sure I've mentioned it before, and I'm sure it's in the show notes, but sdsullivan.com. Yep, that's the easy way. So there you go. Head over there to check out everything that Steve is up to. Get involved with the Cushing Project. Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors is uh, is my classic monster movies novel that has just come out this last October and is available now. And if you go to my site, sdsullivan.com, you'll find some links there. You can get it on Amazon in print or ebook form. You can also read some free stories of it on my site and if you're really crazy you can go back and go through all 35 or 40 chapters or whatever it is on the site but you're going to want to want to get an ebook form and have an easier read but there's also a series of every christmas for the last six or seven years i think i've released a new cushing horror story on the site and that is the last one was a the Congo creature, which is a a tribute to the Black Lagoon. Um, so you can check that out and check out the ones in previous times. Uh, if your Monster Jones is still going, you can look into the Frost Harrow Modern Gothic Horror series that I'm doing too. That's a little a little more adult, a little more sexy, but also has free stories that I've been putting out every year on Halloween. So I've got two free story things I do every year at the end of the year to uh, thank my, thank my readers, thank my fans. And just cause I love monsters, man. <laughs> this is what I want to do. I want to just keep writing monster stories, working yeah. on monster stuff. Get yourself over to sdsullivan.com or stephendsullivan.com to learn more about what Steve is up to. He is constantly updating his website with new information, with uh, movie reviews, with new free chapters of his books. As of right now, you can pick up uh, or, or read for free chapters of his Frost Harrow book, which is titled Die With Me. That's available right now. Also, as he mentioned earlier, there's a free Cushing Horrors story as well that has a, a Black Lagoon vibe, although you can't call it the creature from the Black Lagoon because of everything, you know, copyright and all that. So go check that out and let Steve know that you heard about him here on Monster Kid Radio. I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes, you know, an Amazon affiliate link to all of his books. So, well, not all of them, obviously. I don't want to fill the, yeah. But anyway, the, the good ones go there. And if you're going to pick up any of his stuff, please consider picking up his books through the Amazon affiliate link because it definitely helps out Monster Kid Radio when you do that. Steve, thanks for being part of the show as always. And we'll have you back on again in the semi-near future. 
Anyway, listeners, that is the end of the show. Thanks for being with us today. Thanks for hanging out with us and spending a little bit of time with us to talk about monsters and monster movies. And in this case, men in really hot dinosaur suits. Appreciate having you here. I've said before, and I'm going to say it again. I'd be talking about these movies and loving them anyway. That I get to do it with my friends and have you guys and gals on the other line. That's a bonus. That's gravy. I really appreciate it. Now, I mentioned earlier our website, monsterkidradio.net. That's where you're going to find everything you need about MKR. Facebook information, Twitter information, Discord information, and our contact information. You can call and leave a voicemail for Monster Kid Radio at 503-810-5MKR. That's 503-810-5657. Or you can send an email to the podcast. MonsterKidRadio at gmail.com is the email address. That's MonsterKidRadio at gmail.com. Everything that we've mentioned on the show will be in the show notes. Links to the band whose music we're going to play here in a second will be there as well. As well as a little bit about the movie we're talking about next week. I already mentioned it earlier in this episode. I'm going to mention it again by playing the trailer for the movie, The Legend of Boggy Creek. Here. In this primitive river-bottom wilderness in southern Arkansas, along with deer, duck, crane, and beaver, lurks a creature that walks upright. Whether it is a man, a monster, or a myth, no one really knows. What we do know is the people around Falk, Arkansas, say they have seen such a creature nearly 250 times since 1954. And that this creature, whatever it is, emits one of the most terrifying sounds ever recorded. Okay, I don't want to spoil it too much for you, but I told Mark this during the recording, and you'll hear it next week, that there was a period in my life when I was really obsessed with all this kind of cryptozoology, unknown mystery type stuff. My thing was UFOs. I was never really a big Bigfoot person, but you know what? I still find it fascinating, and whether or not I believe in Bigfoot or Yeti or Mothman or any of these other things out there, that doesn't matter. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the movie The Legend of Boggy Creek, and the idea of these things potentially existing and how they impact the communities in, in, in which it takes place. It is fascinating. It's an interesting conversation that I had with Mark. It was a blast to chat with him in person. So that's coming up next week. And then the week after that, we're talking about the zombies, the zombies of Morotau with Tom Gerganis from Go Forth and Game. So that'll be coming up in two weeks. So stay right here. Well, not literally right here. Do what you got to do, but come back here <laughs> uh, in seven days and then 14 days for the next one for the upcoming episodes of Monster Kid Radio. Remember, this Saturday we're showing Bigfoot movies to further get you in the mood for next week's episode. Legend of Boggy Creek is on deck, so that'll be a blast. This is a free movie marathon the stream is open to everybody so please feel free to come on by and invite all of your friends there is a live chat do you have to participate in the live chat absolutely not do you want to 
Well, you probably are going to want to because there's some great people in the chat, including Steve. He's there. Tom drops by every once in a while as well. And a number of Monster Kid Radio irregulars, regulars. Kenny's there a lot. He's, he's pretty, right? You know, just, just a lot of us there. And it's a good time. And I would love to have you here uh, just hanging out, watching movies with us, you know? Anyway, I hope you guys and gals have a great week. Hope you've enjoyed the show, and I hope you come back next time. Until now, until now, until then, remember that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service, a mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0 unported license. Of course, that does not apply to the song Trenvia Assassino. That belongs to the Buchanan which is a surf band that you can find at thebuchanan.bandcamp.com. It's off their self-titled EP, which you can pick up digitally for four euros. There are four songs on here. That's a euro song. It's a heck of a deal. It's awesome music. Check them out. Show them some love from Monster Kid Radio. My name is Derek Kim Cook. I'll talk to everybody next week. Ciao. <laughs>